You know, do we run out of children's notes today? Maybe, I think maybe just made it. I'll, I'll fire up a few more next week. That'd be fine. We're okay. Uh, you know what? Um, the end of my message today, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper. So I, I want to just give some announcements now so that we can just leave um, and break up having thought about that. Um, First is uh, my dad wrote a book. As many of you know, he gave out many copies. You have some copies here today, is that right? So if anyone didn't get a book, uh, talk with him. He'll even sign it for you. How many of you started reading that book at all? Some of you? Okay. Well, encourage him. Some of you have told me, encourage him by, by telling him that. That'd be great. Um, also, we do have a children's box that should have made it the weekly word. I just, uh, just forgot about a Christmas box. If you want to save postage on... Um, Christmas cards, you just want to dump those in the box. They'll get distributed. Which Sunday? Next Sunday they're going to start or Sunday after that? By the 20th. Okay, so you just put them in there. You can save postage and, and that will work. Uh, if you want to do that, there's a nice, nice picture there, nice box there. Uh, also, we do have family night tonight. Uh, this will be our last one until 2010. Just would encourage all of you to come. If you have children, if you have grandchildren, it would be a great time for you. Uh, just kind of uh, Ted Tripp and Paul Tripp are great. They make the gospel central in parenting. It's excellent. It's not just externals. It's more trying to get to the heart of kids, what we all, all need and are help with. Um, next Sunday night, um, we normally have a potluck this Sunday morning. We're not going to have a potluck. We're going to have a Sunday night children's program. In fact, after church today, there's a children's practice with that. And then we will have uh, uh, a program next Sunday night, 4 o'clock. Four o'clock, kind of dinner right after that. So come, that'd be great. To, great time to invite grandparents. Great time to uh, invite those who might uh, might want to see that. It'd be a fun time. Thanks, Karen, for all your work. And Wendy, what you're doing with that? Mostly, mostly Karen. Karen, and we have another thing to say. How about right now? I'm trying to say so we're done. We're we're done. So go ahead, Mayor Stan. <coughs> Anything else that I'm forgetting? I'm just trying to... Anything else? All right. Well, then we can open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. As you're turning there, I want you to think in your minds. Just, I, I, want, I want to put a picture of somebody in your minds. We might have different pictures as we think about this. But I want you to think about the most famous Christian alive today. Just the one that... Um, you might have a, a name that just comes across your mind. Well, someone who's just like, like revered very highly by many. Someone who has had great success in the ministry. Many come to Christ. Many sought His counsel. Looked to Him or, or her even. Known far and wide for His godliness. Hasn't been rocked by any scandals. Has integrity in His family. Integrity in His ministry. Financially has been integrity there. Known for His humility. Maybe someone stands kind of larger than life, if you will. Maybe some people will come to mind. Anybody like that come to mind at all? Billy Graham. Billy Graham. <laughs> Steve Brandon. <laughs> uh, not hardly. Um, Billy Graham. Did anybody have anybody else that came to mind as I thought about that? John MacArthur might be a good one. John Piper might be a good one. Yeah, sorry, what do you got? Francis Chan. I don't think many of you know Francis Chan. I know Darren Weeby knows Francis Chan. Do you, Darren? Okay, of course. Um, 
But I think Billy Graham is one that just, uh, in everybody's mind, just instantly there. And he's, he's run the race. And he's in his last days. And he has been faithful. He's a humble man. Many have come to Christ because of him. In fact, Phil, I think that's your testimony. Right, saved through his preaching. Any others here? I'm just wondering. Saved through his preaching at all? I, I know of several others that are not here today. Um, but just, you know, he's, a, he's one who's, you know, many have just seen him as a hero of the faith in many ways. Okay, now, so let's go back to the first century, just after the days of Jesus. Now, I want you to think there, maybe not just of that generation, but of, of anybody who the Jewish people looked up to and um, said, he is our hero and, and he is he's the greatest of Jews. He tasted much success in his ministry, did many miracles, Many sought his counsel, perhaps. Many looked to him, known far and wide for his, his godliness. No, no glaring great sin in his life. Walked with integrity. Was known for his humility. Anybody come to mind? Who would you say? Moses. Moses. Good, Andrew. I think Moses, uh, of anybody in the Jewish circles, if you'd asked anybody, they'd have said Moses was their hero. Oh, oh certainly Isaiah was a godly man. Jeremiah preached much. And, and some of the saints, Ezekiel, went through a tremendously difficult time. And those are all heroes. And David certainly was. But the one that stood above and beyond, like our Billy Graham today, would have been Moses. He was a religious icon in the days of Jesus. He was admired by all. The most famous Jew probably of all time. He knew the providence of God in his life should have died as a child, murdered at the hands of of the Egyptian pharaoh is trying to reduce the population of the Hebrew people. And yet, instead of dying, he grew up in the house of the Egyptian pharaoh, knowing all the privileges that came to it. It's just the providence of God. He led the people of God out of slavery, working miracles in his hand. Twelve, ten plagues came just as he said. They came upon Egypt, exactly like he had announced. The sea was split as he held out his hand. Water came from the rock. Manna was in the wilderness, the hand of Moses. He experienced God like no one else. He saw God in the burning bush. He was up on the mountain speaking with God back and forth. God gave the law through Moses. Moses spoke with God face to face. God listened to Moses. When fighting with the the Amalekites, it it was Moses' outstretched arm that allowed Israel to prevail the day. It's kind of like symbolic of him praying Whenever his hands were up, and Aaron and Hur then eventually held his hands up, then Israel conquered. But when his hands fell down, the Amalekites were gaining ground. And God was ready to abandon the people of Israel with their sin. It was Moses who pled to God that caused God to relent of that calamity. Despite all these amazing things about Moses, he was also a humble man. In fact, it says in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, Now the man Moses was very humble more than any man on the face of the earth. A great successful man, and yet he was humble more than any. In the eyes of Jewish people, he was a hero, regardless of the greatest of men. The highest example of human fidelity was him. The Jewish attitude towards Moses, by the way, was not folklore. It wasn't imagination. It's not like some figment of some imaginary figure they lifted up and, and exalted. No, it was rooted in the testimony of Scripture. Numbers chapter 12 is a, is a key passage. It tells about when Aaron, Aaron and Miriam spoke against their brother Moses. They said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through him? Has he not spoken through us as well? God heard their complaints and he said, Aaron and Miriam, why don't you come here? Let's have a meeting. 
And when he spoke with them, he said this, Hear now my words. If there's a prophet among you, I the Lord shall make myself known to him in a vision. I will speak with him in a dream. But not so with Moses, my servant. He, was, he is faithful in all my household. When I speak, with him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, not in dark sayings, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? He said, prophets are good. I make myself known to them in dreams. And the revelation though that came through Moses is much better. Not dreams. I'm speaking to them clearly. Not in images, not in parables. He's seeing them. He's seeing my form He is faithful in all my house. In fact, one of the rabbis says this, God calls Moses faithful in all his house and thereby he ranked him higher than the ministering angels themselves. It's really appropriate for a study in Hebrews, if you know what I mean. We've studied angels. Jesus is higher than the angels and now we're coming. Jesus is higher than Moses. And the people of Israel understood that for over a thousand years people looked up to Moses and didn't speak a word against him. In fact, when Stephen came, if you look in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7, the thing that, that caused the Jews to so grumble and so complain and stone Stephen to death was the fact that he spoke against Moses. The people heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God, Acts 6.11. Acts 6.13, this man incessantly speaks against his holy place and the law. And that was unthinkable to the Jews. You just didn't speak against Moses. And he really wasn't speaking to Moses. He was speaking of the greatness of Jesus, which then relegated Moses to second level. But they did not like that. You don't touch Moses. Like in many ways today, you don't touch Billy Graham. You don't. Because he is such an icon and lifted high so well. Well, that's a historical backdrop. I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews 3 if you're not there already. Our text is the first six verses of this chapter. And Jesus is gonna, the writer is going to argue that Jesus is better than Moses. It's just one of many arguments in the book of Hebrews. In fact, even here on the overhead it says, Jesus is better, so press on. We've seen that He's better than the prophets and that His revelation is flesh and blood, more so than just pen and ink. Various times, various ways, He spoke to us in His Son. We saw the last couple months how Jesus is better than the angels. Um, just two chapters speaking about that, and now the chapter comes in chapter 3 about who is better than Moses. And this, you have to feel, really addresses the issue and the error of the original readers. From various different angles, they're being pulled away, being pulled back to their historical roots. They are pulled from their family. They are pulled from their tradition. They were pulled from the social strata of the day. And the pull was to return to the religion of Moses. I mean, following Moses and the law was the only thing that many Jewish people in this time knew. Um, They grew up in it. Their families had been steeped in it. And it was a big temptation for those in the church. Thinking that salvation came through the law, the circumcision and the rituals which they had abandoned coming into the church, they felt the pull of that. Said, oh, maybe I need to go back to that. I can think perhaps of an equivalent temptation of that might be a Roman Catholic who grew up with lots of rituals and the smoke and the incense and then comes into the evangelical church with just the Bible and not no crucifix up there. And it's just people in fellowship and kind of feeling like, you know what, I'm missing something and wanting to go back into the darkness of Catholicism. 
Well, that's what these Jewish people were doing, thinking about going back into the darkness of the festivals and the sacrifices. Now, I don't think that any of us have the temptation of moving back into the Mosaic Law. Okay? I don't think that any of us think that we need to be circumcised to be saved or we're tempted to offer up bulls and goats for our sins. So, we need to do a little bit of contextualization here because the message back then is not, not quite so applicable to us, though the principles definitely will, will help us and we will see once again that Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than the law. But there are some temptations that are very real for us today that are a bit similar to maybe what these people face. Like I said, Roman Catholics may be going back into their faith or maybe, maybe going back into some ritualistic religion that you were involved with before coming to faith in Christ. Or we might easily maybe begin to add certain requirements to the Gospel. You know, the, the Galatians. Think about that. In, um, in the book was written to those in Galatia dealing with the error of whether you need to be circumcised to be saved. And these people were full-fledged believers in the church and then just thinking about, well, maybe since it says in the law, circumcision, maybe, maybe we just have that one little thing. Because what do we do with the Gentiles? Maybe circumcision is real. And Paul says, you had that one thing, you're going to destroy everything. Because it's not about circumcision. We might easily add other requirements, like maybe baptism. Like, well, in order to be saved, you have to be baptized. Adding other requirements, that might be a temptation. That's just going back into law. Or maybe church attendance or Bible reading or, or some other practice that we have, which is good in and of itself, which might become elevated to higher than um, what should be. And, and essentially what you've done is you've fallen away, you've fallen back into something of old. Maybe a, the way that we do church. You might think that we do it exactly right and you've got to do it our way in order to be saved. Or you might think about the way we do family and the way we do family worship. Or maybe the way we school our children and that's the way it's got to be done. And all those things, as good as they are, are just like going back to Moses. You're going back to some law. You're going back to some righteous requirement to make things right for you. But there's only one thing. It's Jesus, His blood, and His righteousness. And we have some danger going back to our Moseses. And I'm just saying that Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than all the practices of the law that you might have. In fact, that's where our, our text begins really is to remind us of the greatness of everything we have in Christ. It says in chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Here he starts, he calls them holy brethren. Holy, that is sanctified, set apart, purified in the blood of Christ. We are brethren. There's a, there's a fellowship among us that is like family, that is true of all believers. This echoes... Chapter 2, verse 11, where he says, Both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. There's the sanctification idea that Jesus sanctifies us. He cleanses us by His blood, calls us holy. And then we're one, from one Father, so He calls us brethren. So there's a, a community of believers among us who are like family. And then he goes on to describe these people in the congregation as holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. They tell us of the realities of those who have embraced Christ as Messiah. God initiated this call from heaven and He calls us to heaven. And according to chapter 2, verse 10, that He is bringing many sons to glory. That is Jesus' active work is to bring us there to glory. Bring us, we have a heavenly calling. And this, in many ways, is paving the way subtly 
for his argument that Jesus is better than Moses because Moses had an earthly calling, an earthly community, the Jews. Christians have a higher calling than merely the things upon earth. Christians have a heavenly city that we anticipate someday. It's not merely earthly. I think that's being set up here. He's calling, we have a heavenly calling. We are citizens of heaven, as Philippians 3 verse 20 says. And this is the key to Christian living. It's to, to set your hope, set your mind on the hope that's set before you. Think about heaven. Think about the realities of the streets of gold. Think about the realities of the peace and harmony. I've been working recently on Revelation 21 and 22, just thinking about the realities of heaven. It's a new heaven and a new earth. Because the first heaven, the first earth has passed away. There's no longer any sea. It's, it's a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. The day Jesus, God says He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll no longer be any death. There'll be no mourning or crying or pain. This city is an awesome city. Its length is as great as its width. When this angel measured it with a gold measuring rod, it was 1,500 miles. Length is as great as width, as great as height. There's no temple in it for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb were its temple. In the middle of the street, there's this river. It's the river of the water of life that God has promised He will give to those who thirst from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And on either side of this river, there's a tree bearing fruit. Twelve kinds of fruit, yielding different fruit in its seasons. The leaf of the trees are for the healing of the nations. It's a tree of life. It's a heaven that we wait for. Several times talk about the city was pure gold. That's what it says in Revelation 21. Like clear glass. The street of the city is pure gold like transparent glass. This wall has 12 foundation stones in it. And these 12 foundation stones are adorned with every kind of precious stones. There's jasper and there's sapphire and there's chalcedony and there's emerald. There's chrysospace, chrysolite, sardonyx, sardius. I don't even know what these things are, but all these kind of precious jewels. There's beryl and topaz and jacinth and amethyst. The gates are, are pearls. Each gate is a single large pearl. No unclean thing enters heaven, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life have been sanctified by His blood or in heaven. We have a heavenly calling. That's what we are called to. Not an earthly calling like Moses. In that sense, Jesus is better than Moses. It is interesting that in Hebrews, several times it speaks about how we ought to set our minds and set our affections on the things of heaven. In chapter 11, verse 13, it says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. It's not the earth we're about. We're about the heavenly things. And the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews 11:14, Those who say such things, right, looking for heaven make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. He said if they had been thinking of that country from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But it is, as it is, they desire a, a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, Hebrews 11:16, God is not ashamed to be called their Father and their God because He has prepared a city for them. We have a heavenly calling. It says in chapter 10, verse 32, how in the former days when after being enlightened, they endured a great conflict of sufferings. 
partly, as it says, by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers of those who were so treated. It said, You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better one that is a lasting one that is a heavenly one. That's how the writer to the book of Hebrews argues. You have this reality in heaven with Jesus which is better than your earthly reality and so pursue that. Focus on Jesus. In fact, look at that's what chapter 3 verse 1 says. It says, consider Jesus. We are these holy brethren who have a heavenly calling. We need to consider Jesus. That is, think upon Jesus. Consider Him. The NIV is very good here. It says, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Think about Him. Think about heaven. Think about where He is. Think about how He's at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Think about, like last week, Hebrews chapter 2.18, how He's been tempted in all things we are. Think about the fact that He's a high priest ever living to make intercession for us. Consider Him. It's the call of the book of Hebrews to think and consider Jesus. And when you consider and see how great He is, what's going to follow that? We're going to press on. What we're going to do. When you think about how great Jesus is, Jesus is better, so press on. There's nothing else in this life that compares with Him. There's no greater pleasure than in Christ. There's no greater religion than Christ offers. There's no greater help and temptation than what Christ gives. There's no greater confidence that we can have to live this life. There's no greater path to godliness than to considering Jesus. We've seen this call in the book of Hebrews to... Consider Jesus, chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, because Jesus is so great, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. But since Jesus is so great, let's pay attention to Him. Let's pay attention to the salvation that we have. Paying attention to Jesus, considering Jesus, these are practical synonyms. We need to run to Him. We need to trust in Him. We need to think about Him. We set our minds on Him. We are heavenly citizens called by a heavenly calling. And you know what? Our danger is to neglect this. It is. I know the danger in my heart. I know the danger in your heart is to neglect the wonders of Christ. We begin to focus on other things. We run into trouble. Whether it's thinking about your job or finances or earthly pleasures, that that can just draw us away from our heavenly calling considering Jesus. Maybe it's looking to your own religious deeds, thinking of, of how good we are. Look, we've attended church this morning. We're going to read Luke chapter 2. I'm going to follow Frank Yonke's suggestion that he did, that family handbook that he gave. I'm going to follow that to a T and look at how good we are as a family. We've missed Jesus if that's how we think. The trouble's the same. Whether straying into worldly thinking or straying into thinking of how good I am, All of it is missing the cross of Christ. We're drifting from Him because we don't consider Him. Well, the danger of the original readers is to drift back into the Jewish manner of life, all its rituals and sacrifices, which can never make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Instead, what we need to do, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, all these people live by faith, we too need to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, And let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's what I preached last week. It's the message this week. Consider Jesus. I want to read this whole text to see how it is we need to consider Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, 
Partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. It is worthy to note here, as the writer is showing that Jesus is better than Moses, nowhere does he speak disparagingly or bad about Moses. In verse 2 we read that Moses was a faithful man in all his house. Verse 5 we read that Moses was faithful as a servant. This word for servant isn't a derogatory term in any way. It's not like a slave. It's not that Moses was a slave. Rather, he was an honored servant. He was the, the doctor on the ship who serviced all the people on the ship as a servant to everybody, but a very honored servant. He was the tutor to the child. Yes, a servant of the household, but yet one who, who taught the children was placed in a place of honor. And that's where Moses was. He wasn't a slave. He was one who was a servant in God's house in every way. And when Moses is said to be faithful, it means that he did everything God called him to do. Listen to God, obeyed God, remained loyal to God. Even when an entire nation was engaged in idolatry, Moses was faithful. Now, that doesn't mean he was perfect. He murdered a man in Egypt. He disobeyed God by striking the rock twice when God told him to speak to the rock. But when you look at his life in general, you come away impressed with his faithfulness. And in that way, in fact, Jesus and Moses are very similar. That's my first point. Similar to Moses, verses 1 through 1 and 2. Jesus is similar to Moses. And, and he starts off by showing how Jesus and Moses are, are, are pretty similar. First of all, they're similar in that they're both apostles. Right? It says, chapter 3, verse 1, Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, that might throw you a little bit that Jesus is an apostle. When we think of this word, we often think of the twelve apostles, right? Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Paul, all the disciples, those sent by Christ to accomplish His mission. We don't think of Jesus being an apostle. And the reason why we don't is because this is the only time in the New Testament where it mentions Jesus being an apostle. But when you realize, what does it mean to be an apostle? It just means one who is sent out. And in that sense, Jesus is an apostle in every sense of the word. Just like Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Paul were all sent out by Christ Himself personally, so also Christ was sent out by His heavenly Father. Especially you read the Gospel of John and you'll see time and time again verses like this. John chapter 6, verse 57, The Father has sent me. John chapter 7, verse 29, I know Him because I'm from Him and He sent me. There are about ten verses in John that Jesus acknowledges that He was sent from His Father. He is an apostle in every sense of the word. He's an ambassador. He's one who's, who's going out with the authority of the one who sent Him. And you can easily argue that Moses was an apostle as well. Oh, he was never labeled apostle. So he might not be an official apostle, but he was definitely sent out by God to the people of Israel with the authority of God. Consider his call when, when God appeared to him at the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3, verse 10, God said to him, Therefore come now, I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. 
But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this should be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought up the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. And then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? And what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Three times in that passage, just five verses that I read, God is saying, I'm sending you Moses, I'm sending you Moses. And Moses even said, well, what should I, what should I say? I, I, I tell them, well, God sent me. Even he acknowledged that he was a sent one. He came with the authority of God. And in that sense, he is an apostle. In that sense, he is similar to Jesus. But it's also similar to Jesus in that Jesus is identified here as a high priest. Similar in the same way, last several weeks we've been spending time looking at what this means. It means that Jesus is at the right hand of God and He pleads God on our behalf. He is our high priest. Pleading God on our behalf. Jesus comes with His blood, which made propitiation for our sins, and takes the blood and argues before the Father. He says, Father, I have, I've forgiven these people through the blood and here's the blood offered for you. Symbolic of His death. Right? Here's my death I offer to them. Propitiation. Turning God's wrath away. That was Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Jesus comes to God with His prayers, pleading the Father's mercy upon us. Here, Hebrews 7, 25, for the first time, that God, Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession on our behalf. He always lives to make intercession for us. He is the high priest before God's throne, always praying for us. And we will see that come up again and again and again in the book of Hebrews. He's able to help in our time of distress. That was last week, chapter 2, verse 18. Over in chapter 4, 14 through 16, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things we are yet without sin. Therefore, the writer says in verse 16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And how is it that we find grace and mercy at the throne of God? We find it because Jesus is interceding for us and beseeching the Father on our behalf. That's what it means to be a high priest. And in this sense, you can argue that Moses was a high priest as well. Well, not in the official sense of the term. He never offered a sacrifice like his brother Aaron, who was the first high priest. But he did perform a function very well of going to God on behalf of the people. I think of several instances of this. First of all, in Exodus chapter 18, when Jethro, his father-in-law, saw the way in which Moses was judging all the people, he said, that was bad, you need some help. Listen to what Jethro said. He said, Moses, listen to me. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. You be the people's representative before God and you bring the disputes to God and then you get help in the minor disputes. So the major disputes, you go to God for help on behalf of the people. That's the role of a high priest, to be the people's representative before God. Or another day, when Moses is on the mountain receiving the law by the finger of God, you remember what's happening down at the base of the mountain? Kids, maybe some of you remember what was happening at the base of the mountain when Moses on the top. What's happening? They made a golden calf. Exactly. You know what, Andrew? You get to have first, tre- first dibs on the treasure today. You have two answers. Wonderful. Thank you. 
Maybe that'll make the other kids speak up a little bit more. <laughs> they made a golden calf. God said to Moses, Go down at once, for your people you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from what I've commanded them. They've made a molten calf. They said, Oh, this is your God, O Israel. And then listen to what the Lord said to Moses. He said, I've seen these people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now let me alone, Moses, that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, and I will make out of you, Moses, a great nation. Like, you know, this Abraham thing failed. Let's do this Moses thing. And then Moses turned into high priest, and he basically pleaded God on behalf of the people. Moses said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people? whom you've brought out out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountain and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger, O Lord, and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit forever. You hear what he's saying? He's saying the, the covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God, remember that covenant. Don't be a mockery that we bring these people out of Egypt only to be destroyed. Remember your glory, O Lord, and save and preserve these sinful, wicked people. And then we read, So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he'd do to his people. Now is not the time to consider the theology of that, but it is the time to consider this, that Moses, the high priest, pleading God on behalf of the people. He was fulfilling that role, whether he had the title or not. God was about to destroy the people. Moses went to God on behalf of the people, and the people were saved. His efforts made a difference, and Moses acted like a high priest. In that sense, Moses and Jesus are similar. Alright, that, that's kind of where it stops a little bit because the reason for this passage isn't to lift high how similar Moses and Jesus are. Now, if you think about the apostleship of Jesus, it's a little bit higher than the apostleship of Moses. The high priestly role of Jesus is far greater than the high priestly role of Moses. But they are similar in that way. But the reason for considering Jesus in verse 1 is because, my second point, Jesus is superior to Moses. And that begins in verse 3. And I think what's interesting here is the writer, you know, takes the best of men, Moses, the best that men can offer, and said, yes, he did well, he was faithful, but you know what, Jesus is much better than he. Verse 3, he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As Jesus and Moses were similar, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And we saw the glory of Jesus in chapter 1. He is the Son of God. He is worshipped by angels. He is a throne that will last throughout all eternity. He's the creator of the world. He's seated at the right hand of God. Moses had none of these things. Certainly he was a child of God, but he wasn't the Son of God. He was by no means worshipped. He may have had a throne of some kind of um, dominion which he ruled and judged, but it was far different than the place of Jesus' throne throughout all eternity. He was no creator. He was merely a creature in God's world. And Moses surely has a high seat of honor in heaven someplace. On the Mount of Transfiguration, God brought two people back. It was Moses and Elijah. Certainly speaks of the honor, but 
but the honor of Moses in heaven, when you get to heaven and see that gates and see that city, it's the glory of the Lamb that illumines the city. It's not the glory of Moses that illumines the city. It's Jesus at the right hand of God the Father. When you look, you will see God and you'll see the Lamb and Moses. You're going to have to search for Him. Though you'll probably be able to find Him. And He'll be honorable. But, but His honor doesn't even compare with the honor given to Jesus. Now there's an analogy given here in verse 3. He's been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Now, when a building is built, it has honor. Which of, how, how many of you like to walk through a new home that's built? Very nice, right? You, you go through there and there's that, that drywall smell, that paint smell, which smells so nice, the, the fresh carpet smell, it's clean, and you say, wow, this is a really nice house. Or maybe an office building goes up. Like there's an office building that's gone just off of our neighborhood right here on, on 90 down south here a little bit. and it, it attracts attention. People drive by and I'm sure you can go in there and say, wow, this is, some office buildings should be quite ornate. You know, different pillars and different structures and say, wow, this is, this is really neat. And at times a building can have great honor like the Sears Tower, which by the way changed its name like just a couple months ago. You guys know what the name of the Sears Tower now is? Yes, what's Hannah? The Willis Tower. Exactly right. You and Nathan, you guys get second dibs on the treasure, all right? <laughs> the Willis Tower. When the Sears Tower was built, it was the tallest building in the air for 24 years. Tallest building on the, in the world. For 24 years, it held that distinction. And, and it has great, great honor, does these buildings have. But whatever honor the building has, we know that it's eclipsed by the builder. Now, we may not know the name of the person who built the Sears Tower or the architectural firm, but we know the building would be nothing apart from the builders. See, buildings don't build themselves, right? Houses don't build themselves. Houses and buildings aren't plants, all right? They don't just sprout up. The existence of a house argues for a builder, right? Unless you're in science, right? The existence of anything argues for a creator unless you're educated in schools today. But that's how it works. Is that the existence of a house argues for a builder and the builder is the one who designed the house and has more honor than the house. There's the analogy. And then that's, then comes the, the point of verse 4. It's really this whole point, right? Every house is built by someone. The house argues for a builder. But the builder of all things is God. So when it comes to Moses, he was a part of his house. When it came to Jesus, he was the builder of the house. That's how it's applied in verses 5 and 6. Look. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. There are some some distinctions there that show that Jesus is superior. First of all, Moses was in his house. He was a member of his house. He was one of many. But Jesus was over his house. I mean, Jesus is above it. He's the head. He reigns and rules. He's the one over the house. It's a little different. makes Jesus superior. Moses was in his house as a servant. But Jesus was over his house as a son. Now there's a big difference between a servant and a son. The son is the heir who owns everything, who will inherit everything, who can fire the servant someday. And the servant serves the son. So Moses serves Jesus makes Jesus superior. Moses, also as it says here, was a sign. 
He was a, a testimony of things that were to be spoken later. Jesus, however, was that very thing which was to be spoken later. So in other words, Moses is the finger pointing and Jesus is the object. In that way, Moses was just like John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb of God. And what did John the Baptist say about Jesus? He must increase and I must decrease. Well, that's what Moses was saying. He said, I'm pointing my finger. This is for a testimony of things which were to come later. I'm testifying to some who is coming later. And that is Jesus. And the Scriptures often speak this way. We often see Moses pointing to Jesus. In John chapter 5, Jesus was having an argument with the Pharisees who were wanting to kill Him because He broke the Sabbath and He made Himself equal with God. And Jesus told them this, You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. You're searching Moses. You're searching the law. You're searching the prophets. And you think you have eternal life in them. And He says, And you're unwilling to come to Me. It's they that testify about Me. And you're willing to uncome to Me so that you may have life. He says, I do not receive My glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in My Father's name, and you did not receive Me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you set your hope. Think about it. They've set their hope in Moses. They've not believed in Jesus. And then Jesus says, If you believed in Moses, you would also believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you don't believe His writings, how will you believe My words? Because His writings testified to the fact that Jesus was coming. makes Jesus superior because He's the object to whom He's pointing. When on the road to Emmaus with His disciples, Jesus was explaining things about Himself in the Scriptures. as beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in the Scriptures. He said, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets must be fulfilled. You see, Moses was one of many who just pointed to Jesus who anticipated a greater prophet coming later down the line. Moses is the one who predicted the, the, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of Satan. So Moses prophesied and testified to that. Paul said it this way, By the works of the law, no flesh should be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And there's a subtle way in which that is as well. See, it's not the law that removes the sin. It's the law that gives us the knowledge of sin. It's not the sacrifice. It's not the feasts and the festivals that make us righteous before God. Rather, they show us sin pointing to something greater. We'll be able to resolve that sin, which is Jesus. They anticipate this house that Jesus will build. And Moses was the pointer. Therefore, he, Jesus is superior is how the argument goes. And look there again in verse 6. It says, A Christ was faithful as a son over his house. And then he says, well, let me ask this question. What's his house? What's the house that Jesus would build? Okay, kids, you got another chance. What's the house that Jesus would build? We have Andrew, and we have um, Hannah, and we have... No, Nathan, you're already, you're already there. Who else wants to kind of guess? Who, what's the house? We see a hand. Yes, Drew, right? Heaven? Good guess, but not quite what he's talking about here. That's a great guess, though. What's the house? Yes, Gracie? 
Okay, Christ is building a house. He's not building himself. Stephanie, this would be a venture. Steffi? Exactly. <laughs> well, I'll give you all three. You, you, you can choose a second. Yeah, do you have one? The church is what it is, right? Jesus promised to build the church. He used that metaphor. He said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. And oftentimes in the New Testament, the, the New Testament refers to the church as a house. Paul wrote to Timothy saying, I write to you so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of a living God. In 1 Peter 2, 5, Peter wrote, Your living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Church is here described as a house. The Christ was faithful as a son over his house, which is the church. Just think about it. How many times does the Bible speak about Jesus being head of the church? Many times. Ephesians. Colossians. 1 Corinthians. Okay, but here's really a point of application, point of question for you all. Are you part of his house? I'm not talking about being part of Rock Valley Bible Church. I'm talking about being part of the, the house of God, the church of God, the universal church of all genuine believers, because there are many in churches who aren't a part of His house. But here's, I ask you that question because that's the question verse 6 asks. Christ was faithful as a son over His house, whose house we are, if, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. There's a conditional word in that sentence. The conditional word is the if. It says we are His house, if we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm until the end. He's placing some doubt in these people he's writing to. So are you, are you really there? Are, are you really in his house? We are his house if something else is true. So you say, well, what's, what's got to be true? We are his house if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. That's describing our confidence, right? Confidence that Jesus is our only hope. That's the confidence he's talking about there. There is a confidence. Chapter 10, verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. We need to have this confidence that, yes, Jesus is the one who paid for my sins. I'm, 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 I'm all in. You know, I don't know much about poker, but, you know, there's Texas Hold'em. There's a, we're all in, right? Some guy takes all his chips and pushes them all there. That's what it is, confidence. And that's what we're in. We are all in. We have this confidence. And we have what it says here, a boast of our hope. It's boasting in the cross of Christ. We're not boasting in our works. And we are boasting. We are making it known. We are telling others, yes, I have this hope. It is in Christ. So, we are His house if we hold fast our confidence and we have a boast, a trust in Jesus Christ firm until the end. That's what it says. Now, I want to spend some time here because it sets the tone for the rest of the book of Hebrews. There are some statements in Hebrews which, how can you say, come very close to indicating you can lose your salvation. It talks about how you can fall away in chapter 6. In chapter 10, it speaks about people trample underfoot the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified. So, in some sense, they were sanctified. They've trampled under Many interpret that you can lose your salvation. But however you interpret those passages there, I think they have to be consistent with what's spoken here in chapter 3. Do they not? 
I mean, it's one thing for say, well, well, Paul says, neither death nor life nor angels or principalities nor things present nor things to come can ever separate us from the love of Christ. Those whom He foreknew, He predestined. Those He predestined, He called. Those He called, He glorified. He justified. Those He justified, He glorified. It's a done deal. Those whom He predestined to know, He glorified in the end. It's one thing for Paul to say that, and then the writer of the Hebrews, if it's different than Paul, to say something different. But it's something entirely different if the writer of the Hebrews says, he can't lose this thing, and then later says you can lose it. You see what I'm talking about? Because I do believe here in chapter 3, verse 6, he's not saying you can lose your salvation, but what he shows you is that if you fall away, it's because you never had it. I think that's the best theology that you can grab from this. And, and here's why I say this. Look at the tense of this verb. It says you are his house if you hold fast until the end. In other words, you are his house if you persevere until the end. It doesn't say you will be his house if you make it until the end. He's not saying that. He's saying an evidence that you are today will be demonstrated in the fact that you persevere until the end. You're not going to fall away. You might say it negatively. This might help you. If you don't persevere until the end, it shows that you are not in his house. It's because genuine faith is enduring faith. Faith that endures is real faith. Faith that falls away is not real, genuine faith. It's the faith that continues on that is real. Jesus said it this way, If you continue in My Word, then you are truly My disciples. You're My disciples today if you continue in My Word. Same thing down in chapter 3, verse 14. In fact, this makes it even more clear because it's a past tense. It says in chapter 3, verse 14, We'll get at some point. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Same kind of language. Same kind of confidence. Same kind of assurance. Same kind of hope. Same kind of endurance, perseverance. But think about what this says. It says you have become partakers of Christ. It means we have embraced Jesus if we continue to the end. And if we don't continue to the end, what does it say? We have not become partakers of Christ. It's the importance of enduring faith is genuine faith. And, and I think some of those who have difficulties with falling away or say you, can, you can't lose your salvation are kind of, kind of, kind of miss it. Because so, some can take this theology, you can't lose your salvation, and will say this. Well, once you're saved, you're always saved. It doesn't matter how you live. In fact, I remember hearing one guy talk about this doctrine he called reversionism. I've never really st- don't really know what this is. But he says this, is that if you just prayed this prayer to Jesus, you can revert to the way you lived before and in fact even live worse than you lived before, but as long as you prayed that prayer, since the Bible says you can't lose your salvation, you're okay. But Hebrews does not argue that way. Hebrews argues this way, that if you prayed this prayer and accepted Christ and believe in Him, you're going to endure. But if you don't endure, shows that what you prayed was a sham. And that's the message of Hebrews. It's what it's press on, encourage on. Jesus is better. Press on by faith. Right? Know Him, love Him, pursue Him. If you continue My Word, you are My disciples. What Jesus said, like I quoted before, First John two nineteen. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, so it might be shown that they were not of us. Same kind of thing. So if you fall away, it shows that you didn't have it, because if you don't hold fast your confidence. Shows you don't are. Also, want to make is that, is that clear? Hope it is. If not, I can talk to you later.
But I think that's key just because that, that can't contradict what it says in Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. Let me just say one more thing here. Enduring on in your faith doesn't save you. It's not the fact that you endure in your faith. It's your faith that saves you. Enduring on in your faith merely shows that your faith is genuine. So you can see people who are trusted and tried and see, well, how is it they do? Remember when Jesus told the parable of the four soils, which are representative of the four souls? He said that there's some that doesn't even grab it, but there's some that hear the Word, receive it with joy. And then when the worries of the world come, what happens? The faith didn't endure. There are some who who receive it, but they don't have any root, and then the the worries of the world choke them off, and what happened? The, The faith didn't endure. It showed signs of life, to be sure. It started growing up, but it never bore fruit. But it's a good soil, which is the genuine enduring faith, which endured until the end. And so I just ask you, are you in His house? Is your faith genuine? If so, I invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us today. The Lord's Supper is for those who have genuine, enduring faith. It's for those who say, yes, God, I love it. I'm boasting of my hope in Christ. I have no other confidence than this. So I invite you to celebrate. And it is interesting how appropriate is it for us to celebrate the Supper this morning. Because the Lord's Supper is yet another place where Jesus demonstrates He's superior to Moses. As we think about the Lord's Supper, oftentimes... I get together with Andy and I say, okay, what, what would be a good text? And as I saw this one coming up, I said, bam, that's a great text because the Lord's Supper shows Jesus is better than Moses. And to show you that, turn back to Luke chapter 22. I know I've alluded to this many times at Rock Valley Bible Church. You need to hear it again because it helps place us in the historical concept of the context of the Lord's Supper. We looked at this passage last week in light of the temptations of Christ. We're going to look at this passage this week in light of um, what he calls us. He says, And the hour had come, verse 14, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That places the context historically. This is the Passover. Who initiated the Passover? You remember? Moses did. It was to commemorate the redemption from Egypt into the wilderness and into the promised land. It's a, it's a salvation metaphor, the Passover is. I, I know I've asked this before, and we just, even we've had Seder meals, which are Passover meals here at Rock Valley Bible Church before. You've, you've been to one? Have you? Some of you have? If you have an opportunity to go with a Jewish person, absolutely Go! Because it's commemorating their salvation and their salvation is in Moses. And then you can say, oh wow, did you know that Moses pointed to where my salvation is? My salvation's in Jesus. And let me show you. And the imagery coming out of the Seder meal is so easy just to point to Jesus. But they are suffering. I think that's the reason why he earnestly desired to have the Passover because it was all about salvation. But Jesus is now going to say, what's, what's happening? Salvation in me, in my blood in my body. That's why he's eagerly desiring. He's going to take this tradition, which has been celebrated by the Jews for 1,400 years, and he's going to have the audacity to come in and change the tradition because of the salvation he's going to provide at the cross of Christ. Look what he says. I say to you, I shall never eat again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Verse 17. And we had taken a cup and given thanks, 
He said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Now you need to understand, here's, here's a cup. And he just kind of shared it around, but this is different than the verse 20 cup. You say, what's going on? Well, in any Seder meal, what they do and what they, they did is they had these cups of wine. And, and they constantly drank. One, one was to remember one thing and one was to remember another. And they often they filled up their wine and they, they, they drank it. And they went around they drank it. There were several different cups that they would drink throughout this whole thing. And so Jesus is sharing one of these cups here. So, so it shows in some sense that the Seder meal today is in some sense similar to what they celebrated back then. And these cups just reminded them of different things. And then, verse 19, it says, when he'd taken some bread and giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. Now, there's several times at Seder meal where they break bread and they eat it around, reminding of the unleavened bread of the sacrifice of the, of the, the Jewish people who didn't have time for it to, to knead and to get going. And, and so they, they left in haste, so it was unleavened bread. And so they'd eat the unleavened bread, reminding that. And the, and the unleavened bread and the Seder meal is... It's a prominent role. It plays a prominent role there. And so he's just doing the normal things he's done in the Seder meal. He's taking the cup, taking the bread, and then he takes the bread and he says, hey, let's remember the Passover unleavened bread. No, he doesn't say that. That's what they would expect him to say, but he says, now, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's saying that what's happening here at the Lord's Supper shows that I'm commandeering this whole ritual thing and it's about me, it's not about Moses, because I'm better than Moses, is what he's saying. And he takes that cup, it's, and today, it's the third cup is the cup of redemption. Maybe, maybe back then it was a little bit different because it's been 2,000 years, maybe things have morphed or changed a little bit. But anyway, there is this called the cup of redemption, it's the third cup in the Seder meal, where you lift it up and you say, oh, let's thank the Lord for redeeming us out of Egypt. And when Jesus lifted this cup, I'm sure they expect Him to say something, the same thing. Let us thank the Lord that, that God brought our people out of Egypt into, um, into the promised land. Where we sit now. Thank, and what did He say? He said, no, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. as off you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drop the Moses thing because the greater reality has come. He testified to me and has come to me. So he's showing that, that Jesus is better than Moses, just right in line with our Hebrews text here this morning. I don't think there's anything superstitious or, or extraordinary about the specific elements. About the, it was just the common bread that was there. It was the common cup that was there. But what was great is that Jesus said, no longer remember Moses. Oh, you can remember him. But now do this and remember to me. And that's what we're doing today. We're remembering the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're part of His house, the faith, your confidence is, is enduring, boy, then, then take it. But if you're not, if that's not where you are, this cup isn't for you. Maybe there's some sin. You say, boy, I'm, I'm faltering here, Lord. Well, cry out to God and repent and turn and seek Jesus who knows what it's like to struggle issues of faith, believing. Not my will, Lord, but, but Yours be done possible let this cup pass. He's having conflicting desires in his body. He's dealing with that. So maybe you have some conflicting desires. Just I call you today, not to skip the meal, but to repent and turn to God and plead his strength. Plead our great high priest and celebrate the meal with us today. The men can come forward as I'll just pray for us. And uh, so pattern, we'll just take bread. We'll hold it all. We'll eat it together. We'll take a cup. We'll hold it all. We'll drink it together. In obedience to Christ, in obedience to Christ, it shows that He's greater than Moses because we've abandoned the Jewish ritual 
embrace the greater reality. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for us today and in weeks and months to come as the argument will relentlessly come, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. May we look to Him. As we think, O Lord, now, as we look to Him in the Lord's Supper, I pray that it would stir our hearts and our minds again to be thankful for the precious body and blood of Jesus Christ, redeemed not with perishable things, so silver and gold, but with a precious lamb, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, Jesus, the Lamb of God. We will forever worship the slain lamb, O Lord. And we worship him now. Thank you for this imagery. Thank you for the symbolism which brings us back again to the death of Christ. May we consider Jesus and be convinced once again that he is better than anything else we might seek after. Lord, I pray for our hearts. For those who are wandering, I pray they'd turn to you. For those who are drifting, I pray that they'd come back. I pray we'd see that the the enduring faith is the real stuff. And so help us, O Lord, to endure. We can't endure on our own. It's you who need to preserve us. It's a great doctrine of the preservation of the sense that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. But now, O Lord, we are working on our salvation with fear and trembling because it's you, O Lord, who work in us to willing to do for your good pleasure. All we can do, Lord, is plead that you would give us these desires to seek after you and to, to serve you all of our days. So may we eat of this bread and drink this cup in a worthy manner. May this be a time where you commune with us genuinely and strengthen us and encourage us in our faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.